This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. The July 4th earthquakes that hit South Central California are a fresh reminder that California's population is the most susceptible in the country to major earthquakes. So why is it that earthquake insurance is no longer required as a condition for a California mortgage, especially when wind insurance is required throughout the state of Florida and other areas to protect against hurricane damage. While less frequent, earthquakes are unique in that the risk is constant and the potential damage can easily exceed those of our hurricanes here, wildfires and flooding combined. Is it time to readjust our public policy? and our insurance policies to adequately cover all of our 21st century risk. We'll ask our guest today. We have John Rollins, consulting actuary from Milliman, the global consulting and actuarial firm. He's a 25-plus year veteran of the business and leads the firm's Tampa, Florida office. I've worked with John for many years, and we also are privileged to have Jim Wilkinson, who is the executive director of the Central United States Earthquake Consortium, or QSIC for short. I'm sure many of our listeners have not heard of it, but you'll get to know more about it today. And Jim has worked in the field of emergency management for 30 years And I have often said that there's a huge bridge between property insurance and emergency management, and these two experts are going to help us build that bridge even stronger today. So welcome, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be here. You're welcome, John. So let's start. Jim, would you tell the audience about QSIC, what it is, what you do, what you're trying to get done, uh, you know, as you spend your days trying to make the world a better place? I would love to. QSIC is uh, an organization that's been around since 1983. Uh, we were established uh, originally by the seven states that would be most impacted by a New Madrid event, um, which runs along the, the Mississippi River, um, in partnership with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And um, we are now an eight-member state organization. Alabama was brought in in early uh, 2000 as the eighth state. But our primary focus is to look at the earthquake threat in the central U.S., which is considerably different than any other part of the country uh, due to the geology and the way the earthquakes occur here in the propagation of seismic waves. And so it's it creates a situation in which it becomes a multi-state impact, and there really wasn't a mechanism to address that. Uh, we had individual state emergency management agencies. Uh, we had federal regions, uh, FEMA regions, but there was no way to look at this as a collective risk to these states. And so we were formed um, to be that organization to do that. So through our members, through our primary board of directors, which is the state emergency management directors uh, of these states, we're able to pull together a vast array of um, focus areas to help us address this. And uh, one of those uh, in the past has been our state insurance commissioners, um, something we're working on to resurrect um, so that we can look at this insurance issue across all of the Q6 states, but we very involved in GIS, uh, public information, response, recovery planning, mitigation. Um, so we have various mechanisms of which we use through this organization to address key areas that are specific to addressing this hazard. Wonderful. Well, we're just very honored to have you join us and to have our listeners find out more about what you're trying to do in the earthquake arena. And John, I would love you to kind of get us kicked off here 
uh, oftentimes we hear, you know, that earthquake insurance is not mandatory and it hasn't been mandatory for many years in California for those that have mortgages. And I'd love you to answer, give me your thoughts about what impact that has on damage caused from earthquakes that's not insured. Well, it's a really interesting problem, Lisa, and it's one we've talked about uh, many times among ourselves. Now, Milliman is a bunch of actuaries, as you said, and we have other professionals as well, but our beating heart is actuarial science, and that makes us serve more in the role of scorekeeper than policymaker. Uh, But as scorekeepers, we uh, tend to find ourselves close to a lot of assignments and uh, consulting engagements that have to do with policy and in particular, the public policy of insurance. Now, contrary to the stereotype, actuaries are actually a very diverse group of people that are creative and like to do a lot of different things. So the part of Milliman I work for, uh, we take a particular interest in disaster-exposed property insurance. And what we found is that not only do the perils vary across the country, as you alluded to, the the idea of uh, severe earthquake seismic risk in places like California and less reported, but in the central U.S., which is Jim's region, and then you have floods, you have wildfires, you have hurricanes. All of these things do have an impact on property insurance premiums. But uh, what's interesting is a couple of factors. One is we've done some really interesting work and and one of our clients made some of this work public and some of that research indicates essentially that all of the catastrophic perils that you think of like earthquakes uh, wildfires floods and hurricanes actually contribute pretty significantly a measurable amount to the total amount of what an actuarially sound homeowner's premium should be for the true risk of these disasters underlying each policy across the u.s Now, obviously, some areas are dominated by one peril. In California, uh, they worry about earthquakes. Uh, In Florida, we tend to worry about hurricanes. So, uh, sure, in one place, you may not have a significant risk from everything. But when you kind of average it and mix it all across the nation, the takeaway for me is how much parity there is in the overall risk of hurricanes, severe storms, floods, and quakes that we kind of all share as a nation. And when you try and measure how much of that should contribute to the premium of your of your insurance policy and you average it countrywide, everybody really has a stake in this. It's e- Each one of those types of disasters I talked about contributes potentially hundreds of dollars to sort of the, quote, fair or right insurance premium, as actuaries would define it. So that runs up against the policy question, which is, if you've got significant, roughly equal risk from hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and earthquakes across the country, why aren't the guidelines for determining uh, eligibility of mortgages for uh, government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and why aren't the uh, concomitant insurance servicing uh, requirements exactly the same across the country? And as you pointed out, in Florida, everyone has to have hurricane insurance. In most of the U.S., if you live in a particular zone that's designated as medium or high risk, you have to have flood insurance in order to get a federally-backed mortgage. But in California, you don't have to have earthquake insurance to get a federally backed mortgage. And that's true in the central U.S. and other regions of moderate to high seismic risk as well. So we don't have all the answers as to why that is. But we do know that a pure clinical look at the numbers would indicate that there's really no reason to favor one peril over the other. I got it. And and Jim, that that throw well, throw it back to you. 
you lay awake at night because you know that many of the residents in the states that you represent are uninsured for earthquake and try as hard as you do and as hard as commissioners, insurance commissioners do and other realtors and others that try to educate the public, it doesn't seem to be real popular for people to have earthquake coverage. What is it that QSIC would like to do uh, to promote that? I know you mentioned that FEMA is out there trying to promote and educate about earthquake insurance. What are your comments about how we might do that or if the federal government can help or state governments should jump in? Well, clearly we've got to figure out a way to get affordability down for earthquake insurance. Um, just looking at Missouri, for instance, the, the six most vulnerable counties in the state uh, between 2000 and 2018 saw almost a 700% increase in their premium costs. Um, you know, so that's definitely going in the wrong direction. And uh, we need to figure out how to, in our, especially in our higher seismic zone areas, um, to get that cost down and availability of that insurance, um, whether that's through incentives, um, you know, we've got to have the, the banking industry needs to be at the table, the, the real estate industry, you know, our, our local developers, there's a whole host of folks that I think have a, a role in figuring out how to make this affordable for the people who need it. And rural communities become even more particular um, because they don't have a lot of the resources um, that we see in larger communities to be able to do some of these things. On top of that, there are also typically uh, communities that have a higher risk from earthquakes because they have a higher percentage of buildings and infrastructure that are vulnerable than a larger city, say, like Memphis or St. Louis, which is typically growing at a, a different pace and, and replenishing their older buildings and putting in things that are designed for, for earthquakes. And so I think it's a collective effort to figure out how do we get to that point where we're all wanting to be? That's if we have um, everybody covered, or as many people covered as can be, uh, for this particular peril. And I think that, of course, is one of the principles of insurance is to spread that risk to as many as possible, which can lead to more affordable premiums because you spread it among larger groups. John, back to you. When you hear him talking about incentives or ways to get a, a premium or the cost down, I think about all the resiliency uh, themes that are in the marketplace now. Give us some thoughts, John, about what you think, if you even to conjecture, if residents were to make their homes more resilient to earthquake disaster, what that might do in theory to a premium? Well, there are a couple of complicating factors in earthquakes specifically that represent probably challenges even beyond what we've seen in uh, mature mitigation situations, let's call it, uh, like Florida, where, you know, Floridians have been talking about making their homes safer against hurricanes for nearly 30 years now and, and certainly spurred by the sort of the seminal shocking event of Hurricane Andrew. Uh, yes, it took years of deliberation after that, but we, uh, most of us that are uh, veterans in the industry know that Florida created a bunch of initiatives to respond to that. And one of them was a mandatory system of insurance premium discounts for highly specific lists of mitigation features which have been demonstrated to reduce windstorm losses. I think some of the trouble with earthquakes is really due to a couple of factors. First of all, you always have the problem in terms of mitigation incentives of who's going to pay for it and what's the cost. Consumers simply don't like spending money up front 
to reduce a contingent future threat that may or may not materialize. Uh, and in particular, if they do spend that money, they think less in terms of financing mechanisms and, and costs of capital, but they think very viscerally in terms of payback period. If I spend X dollars today, what is going to happen in my financial life that means I get paid back that X dollars and over how many months or years will it take me to recover that X dollars that I spent? That's how people tend to think. And the, the hard reality of most mitigation incentives is that the payback period is too long to get consumers to pay attention unless there's also some catalyst from outside, whether that be low interest loans, uh, secured by assessments on the property, whether it be direct government grants or loans uh, that are made by state or federal governments, or whether it be some other sort of public-private partnership. So when you look at just the reduction in actuarially sound insurance premium, it's an incentive for mitigation, but it's not enough. Second problem with earthquakes is that there's far less definitive engineering backed up by recent experience to tell us exactly what sort of construction and retrofits would make a big difference and give us the highest bang for the buck. In hurricanes, uh, we've all seen the news articles, uh, most recently with Hurricane Michael, and the Sand Palace was an extreme. The Sand Palace was this extremely well-fortified home that completely lifted Hurricane Michael on Mexico Beach while uh, the rest of the neighborhood around it literally looked like a bomb had been dropped on it. And that was, uh, you, you saw those images over and over again. Those are extreme cases. Not everybody can afford to build a sand palace, but what mitigation features are demonstrated to have a significant impact after an event? We simply haven't had an empirical answer to that question in, in the case of uh, the central U.S. almost 200 years or uh, actually a little over 200 years since we had the last really major earthquake strike in the Madrid zone. Even in California, uh, we had significant damage from the Loma Prieta earthquake, the Northridge earthquake, and most recently we've had a little bit of a wake-up call in a relatively unpopulated area with the Ridgecrest earthquake. So there's a little more on-the-ground experience, but still not enough to sort of convince consumers that these these things really, really do need to be done, and it's not just some scientist spewing the benefits. It's something you can actually see in your neighborhood after a disaster. And finally, and probably the third problem with earthquakes is, unfortunately, in places like the central U.S., multiple types of disasters compete for your attention. Uh, there are severe storms, including tornadoes. There are floods. There are earthquakes. And so you have sort of this pile-on of mitigation problems, and the engineering features that make your home less susceptible to an earthquake are not the same investments and expenditures you would make to make your home less susceptible to a flood. So in the simplest case, if you elevate your home against a flood and put it on pilings, it may actually make it more vulnerable to an earthquake because it uh, has a higher center of gravity and it's supported by uh, different types of load-bearing mechanisms. So it's really unfair in some regions of the country to ask consumers to spend a lot of money to mitigate against one peril and then spend a lot of different money to sort of potentially undo what they did to mitigate against another peril, which is equally valid. So um, 
not to use too many puns here in an earthquake podcast, but a lot of consumers are caught between a rock and a hard place as to how to spend their money on mitigation and how much they can spend on it. I got it. I think, you know, with where we're headed, knowing that we have an uninsured population, we know that residents in earthquake-prone states are exposed to millions of dollars in damage that will not get repaired because the federal government's ability and and willingness obviously to to step in and and replace everything that gets damaged is a problem in fact jim you know this after and and you can share with the audience after a, a disaster would you share with the audience what you see in terms of what fema is able to quote write checks for uh to help people get back on their feet well it's it's not going to fix everything by any means uh, even the the community itself, they're going to put it back to essentially the way it was for a community, for an individual. Uh, you know, they help provide low interest loans uh, and that sort of thing. But it's not going to be a a check written to just go in and rebuild a person's house. Um, and that's part of, the, especially with the communities, um, when you're looking at mitigation. And it's been one of the conflicts in how we build back better, safer, stronger communities. Um, the program was set up not to build back. Um, to a better, higher standard, it was built to put it back the way it was. Um, and so we, you know, they've been working on uh, changes to that so that we're not adding to the problem. And that's, that's been generally the challenge that we've had is how do you uh, make those advances uh, in risk reduction rather than essentially adding to it because you're just putting it back the way it was. And as John pointed out, some of the things that when you get cross-hazard mitigation, very little of that's being done. And there are some significant challenges in doing that. Um, and you know, part of the challenge is that you've got a business or a homeowner um, that's very anxious to get back into their property um, and asking them to spend an extra week, two weeks, um, extra thousand, two thousand dollars um, on top of what they're already facing to do some of this cross hazard mitigation uh, risk reduction becomes a real challenge. Thankfully, you know, I've never been in a situation where I've been out of my home for two or three months or six months and, you know, even longer. That's difficult. And it's um, something that, you know, we fail to really grasp in the process of how we assess these programs and the cost of them. You know, again, as the cost of disasters are going up, you know, FEMA's taking a really hard look at that whole process and trying to figure out how to reduce that vulnerability um, because we can't keep printing money. And unfortunately, the disasters seem to be increasing in frequency. So figuring out a way um, to provide the incentives, to provide the funding to, to support better rebuilding after the fact um, is a goal that we're all striving for. I think you're absolutely right, Jim. In fact, um, bringing this in for a landing, Milliman, uh, particularly with John's expertise, has done some amazing research about how we as a private insurance industry uh, could do things maybe faster, better, cheaper. John, you want to comment on that before we close out today about what we've done in the flood insurance and what arena and what your research has shown? Well, uh, certainly my day is full and my, my days, months and years at Millman are full uh, doing individual projects for insurance companies, for reinsurers, for uh, startup insure techs, as we call them now, or very technology-driven uh, insurance service firms trying to sort of access the consumer directly and empower them with more information about their risk. So really, everybody in the insurance value chain is coming together to 
put into place private sector solutions to disaster insurance problems. But when we talk about earthquakes versus floods versus hurricanes and so on, the perils, as we say in our industry, like flood, that have received sort of an initial spark from a public policy change are the ones that seem to have attracted the insurance capital. So you look back to uh, 40 plus years of the National Flood Insurance Program being essentially the only provider of flood insurance in the U.S. And then uh, however it happened, whether it was just serendipity or planning or or some combination of uh, luck and cosmic circumstance, the U.S. Congress actually got together in a bipartisan way and passed an act, the Bigger Waters Act, that sort of upended all of the assumptions that the private sector had been relying on for 40 plus years about flood. And it that act did a number of things. One is it it asked the National Flood Insurance Program to answer some hard questions that it had never been asked to answer before. Like, what exactly is your total probable maximum loss exposure in a scientifically plausible flood? It's hard to believe for someone like me, but no one had ever answered that question before. And in fact, the computer modeling technology and catastrophe simulation technology to answer that question didn't really exist because no one was forced to invent it because the private sector was not clamoring for an answer to that question because a government program had been in place for 40 plus years. So catalyzed by some public policy changes, the private sector really started intensely studying the flood insurance problem. And what do you know, when you put millions of people and billions of dollars of capital all up and down an existing value chain called insurance that goes from the consumer buying their first home all the way to a pension fund in Scotland or a sovereign wealth fund in Japan investing in disaster risk through today's reinsurance and catastrophe bonds and other financial mechanisms. When you bring everybody that's in that value chain and you ask them to focus their attention on something new and different like U.S. flood insurance, a lot of interesting solutions start to emerge. And what we've seen in the past six years has been uh, reinsurers developing programs that insurance companies can use on sort of a turnkey basis to add flood endorsements to their homeowner's insurance policies so we can get rid of this problem that our consumers have on the ground, which is a disaster occurred, my home flooded, uh, perhaps it was due to a hurricane, and now I've got insurance companies squabbling over who owns owns the rights to what risk, who it needs to pay me money first, who needs to wait on somebody else, whether the federal government is involved. Uh, it's just a mess for consumers to deal with. And now you have private sector flood insurance companies saying, we're going to, to throw all that out and we're going to start again. There's a better way to do this, which is just to sell you a homeowner's insurance policy and tell you, yes, this also covers floods if you just get this additional page, you know, this additional endorsement for uh, what our research has indicated could be just a couple of hundred dollars a year for 80 plus percent of consumers in these states that we think about that have been recently affected by floods like Texas and Louisiana and New Jersey, New York and Florida. And, you know, to, to use a, a phrase that I heard from an insurance agent once, the dogs are eating the dog food. Uh, the consumer who's offered a flood insurance policy at point of sale by the private sector, even if they can opt out of it, is taking that policy up at a pretty high rate, even though perhaps they don't live in one of the federal government's high-risk zones and is being told by the government to buy insurance as a condition of their mortgage. So, you know, there are green shoots in a market like that that 
was really stagnant for 40 years. Now, I use that by way of example to say that if we had sort of catalyst policy changes, public policy changes, like, for example, um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac asking that question you asked right at the top of the podcast, which is, why doesn't a, a, a government-backed mortgage require earthquake insurance? If they were to update one page of their servicing guidelines and say, by the way, when we say insurance, we mean earthquake as well, it would instantly kind of upend the entire U.S. homeowners insurance market, similar to the way the Bigger Waters Act and a few other uh, follow-on regulations upended the uh, flood insurance market and resulted in a whole bunch of different business models being considered. So that's exciting to me because... I've always looked at U.S. Uh, insurance risk in terms of what Swiss recalls the protection gap, uh, and I've identified three things in the protection gap I want to fix before I retire. One is state-backed wind pools that carry way too much windstorm risk, and I, I'm proud to say I, I made my small contribution to that at Florida Citizens. The second is U.S. flood insurance, which is concentrated uh, in something backed by the U.S. taxpayer, which is a national flood insurance program. We're in the midst of making tremendous progress on that. And really the third massive pool of underinsured risk in the U.S. is earthquake insurance, which is not required at the residential level. So I would certainly love it if we got to a place where the same intellects and the same money and the same hard work that's being brought to bear to solve the flood insurance problem was brought to bear to solve the underinsurance problem in earthquake. You got it, John. And I think Jim Wilkinson is just the guy to do that. Jim, thank you so much for being here today. And John, you as well. And Jim, I think John has given you, um, if he were king for a day, wish list uh, and you are on the right track by putting these insurance commissioners around the table. And I think we'll be having more conversations. John and I stand ready to help you do whatever it is you're trying to so we can get earthquake at the top of the hearts and minds and souls of public policymakers. So, John, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. Lisa, and thank you, Jim. Jim, and you as well. Um, know that we're here for you, okay? Uh, certainly appreciate the insights and look forward to working with you in the future. Great. And in our podcast show notes, we'll have links to all the good things we've talked about here today. And so I want to hear from you. You can call us and leave your comment or question uh, for our later reply on air right here on the Florida Insurance Roundup. The number to call is 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002 or just drop me an email lisa miller at lisa miller associates.com and that's it for today i just appreciate all of you listening and following our work um, i know many of you uh, retweet and repost much of our social media work and you've just been great followers and we appreciate all that you do in the field every day so until next time be safe and i'll see you on the trail This has been Lisa Miller & Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.